Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, a show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I have with me today Dr. Jake Hebert, ICR research scientist and physicist. It is so good to have you with us today, Dr. Hebert. Thank you, Lauren. Glad to be here. So today we are talking about a topic that I know you are very passionate about. You enjoy talking about this a lot and studying it. Um, You've read up on this a lot, done a lot of research into this. Kind of as some background, we know that evolutionists and conventional scientists claim that the universe is 14 billion years old um, and that our solar system is closer to, I believe it's 4.6 billion years old. Is that the claim? But there are some objects beyond our solar system that run contrary to this belief. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. So why does it matter that some of these features, and we'll talk about what they are a little bit later, but just kind of starting laying the groundwork, why does it matter that some of these features exist in deep space? Well, it it calls into question the the Big Bang story uh, because they look younger than they should be if the Big Bang is true. And of course, this all goes back to, you know, can I trust the Bible? Uh, you know, if you read the Bible, it's very clear that God made the entire universe in six literal 24-hour days. And when you add up the genealogies in Scripture, you get an age for the earth and universe of about 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we would expect these things to be relatively young. Uh, now, it gets, it gets a little tricky because then we start getting into things like Einstein's theory of relativity and can clocks in deep space tick at different rates than clocks here on Earth. But here at ICR, we are firmly convinced, it is our firm conviction, that the entire universe, and we, and we want to be very clear here so there's no wiggle room, we're saying the Earth, the solar system, and the entire universe mm-hmm. is measured by clocks here on Earth is around 6,000 years old. Okay. Now, if you, may, if, you, if you had theoretical clocks out in deep space, maybe it could be more than that. Maybe millions or billions, but as measured by clocks here on Earth, it's 6,000 years old. Okay, so for the just to clarify for our audience, time can run differently. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So it's not that things were created millions or billions of years ago. Right. It's that they were created about 6,000 years ago. Right, it is, and time may have run faster in deep space. Interesting, yeah. so that does get complicated. It does, So yeah. it's complicated like we're talking about, but right. does it also complicate evolutionary ideas of the age of the universe, oh, yes. some of these deep space objects? Sure, if these objects are too young to comfort, comfortably fit the Big Bang story, that's a problem for mm. them. And so, in a sense, these are young universe arguments. Again, they don't necessarily prove the universe is just 6,000 years old, but because these ages are younger than what they're expecting, it's an it's an anti-Big Bang argument, anti-evolution argument. Okay, so it's throwing them off. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so with kind of that groundwork, thank you for running through that with just why it's important, why that matters, um, some of the challenges that that presents both for creation and right. evolution. Yeah. So kind of with that backdrop, let's talk about some specific items, sure. um, objects, I don't know what to call them, um, phenomenons in mm-hmm. deep space that show that the universe is a lot younger than people generally believe. So right. first off, let's talk about spiral galaxies. Sure. Um, from my understanding, it sounds like the spiral arms um, wind up over time, like they get tighter and tighter. Right. So the structure would be destroyed after a while. Is that true? That's true. If you assume that the spirals are real structures, uh, because because what you have is you have material and stars that are closer to the center. They go around the, the center faster than stuff that is farther out. And so mm-hmm. what happens is you get this distortion, this winding, 
And, you know, it, it really should become obvious after just a few hundred million years. And the thinking is, is that over billions of years, that spiral structure ought to be destroyed. Now, what the evolutionists claim is they claim that these are not real structures, that these are uh, they're analogous to traffic jams where you have stars and material moving in into and out of these apparent spiral arms. And they have the spiral density wave theory that they think can help explain how you can maintain these spiral structures over long periods of time. Uh, now, we're not really convinced, though, that they've got it licked. Okay, mm -hmm. They've been working on this since before the 1960s, and they're still working on it. And I, you know, I, I try really hard to keep up with the literature. Okay, mm -hmm. so I, you know, because we're trying to always evaluate: are our arguments still valid? Mm -hmm. And they new information made, comes up all the time. Yes, and yeah. they've made some progress in this area, but I'm not convinced that they necessarily got it licked. They've okay. got they've got computer simulations that are fairly impressive, but the ones I've seen only go maybe at most 1.5 billion years. Okay, and you need. You know, for this to work, it really needs to be a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. And the sense I get reading the literature is that there's a growing consensus among the theorists that these are transient structures. But what some of them are claiming is that when one structure, one set of spiral arms gets destroyed, it can sort of regenerate a new spiral arm. I'm not sure I'd buy that, mm -hmm. but that's what some of them are claiming. Uh so I'm, I still think this is probably still a valid recent creation argument because there, you don't really have a viable mechanism for keeping these spiral arms for many billions of years. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm looking at this because there's a lot of lot that's happened in the recent in you know the last four years or so, and so I'm I'm looking back into this to say is this still a valid argument? My gut reaction is that it probably is, but we're in the process of searching the literature. Uh, to see if anything's changed. Right. So has the James Webb Telescope specifically had anything to do with some of this new information that's come up with specifically spiral galaxies? Not really, I don't okay. think. Okay. Uh, except, well, except that you're seeing quote-unquote mature galaxies that are too far out. And by mature, what do you mean by that? Well, well-developed, uh, you know, remember, evolutionists think that everything started out simple and had to get more complicated over time. Mm-hmm. So, and they also believe that when you look back at these these distant distances, what high redshifts, they think that most we would agree that corresponds to very great distances in space, and we wouldn't disagree with them about that. We would agree we're talking billions of light years away. Now they're assuming, and in their worldview, this seems reasonable that it takes that light billions of years to get here. So, if you're looking at very high redshifts. In their minds, this is very shortly after the Big Bang. So in their minds, we're not seeing those distant galaxies as they are now. We're seeing them as they were a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, the problem for them they keep running into is these spiral galaxies look more mature than they ought to. They don't mm -hmm. look disorganized. They look very, very similar to galaxies we see much closer. Right. And this is what's been giving them so much trouble uh, which is really bothering them about the information from the James Webb. Because the evidence is not matching their bias. It's not. It's not. Yeah. And they're they're worried about it. Mm -hmm. And they uh, should be. <laughs> they should be. And uh, you know, we've got all these great quotes where you know one of them said, you know, I'm I'm lying awake at night wondering if everything I've worked on is is wrong. Wow. Now she now she it was funny because uh, she on I think it was on her either her Twitter or Facebook page. 
she she put her name and said, "Yes, the Big Bang is true." And <laughs> so <laughs> keep saying she, she it. Was Maybe getting, you believe she was, it. <laughs> she was getting a lot. Yeah, a lot of people were. Uh, but they're worried about it. They are worried about it. And 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 it. What's interesting is they keep having to push their dates back. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that long ago, I believe they were claiming the first stars formed four hundred million years ago, and yet now it looks like you're getting galaxies. Uh, and mo- most, I think, uh, astronomers would argue the stars came first, then the galaxies, although some of them disagree, I think. But now it looks like you're getting galaxies that might be out there 250 million years after the alleged Big Bang. And that's just way too early. Right. So they're they're very bothered by this. And it looks like those initial findings are standing up to scrutiny, that you're getting galaxies that are uh, much too mature-looking, uh, so this doesn't res- necessarily deal with the spiral arm issue per se, but just the fact that these spiral galaxies exist uh, shortly after the alleged Big Bang is a problem for right. them. Right. Well, and it's so interesting just the contrast because you keep saying, oh, they're having to change this, they're having to change that. And from a creationist perspective, since we're not starting in our own minds, we're starting from something concrete. We're starting from the Word of God. Right eyewitness account of what happened when everything started. And along that, of course, we are always learning new things. But as far as the framework of the age of the universe, the age of the earth, earth history with the flood and other things like that, it keeps confirming the evidence that we find keeps confirming scripture. Maybe little things along the way, we learn new things about, oh, this works a little differently than we thought, but it all confirms what the Bible says. We're not right. having to change our story. Right. God can make whatever kind of galaxies he wants, any distance he wants from the earth. Okay. He's not compelled to, you know, make galaxies that fit the Big Bang model. So if there's uh, well-formed large galaxies out there, you know, that's that's fine. That mm-hmm. certainly fits the scriptural view. So we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to dive a little bit more into specifically, can you summarize the creationist point of view on why and how spiral galaxies exist? Right. Well, obviously we think God made them, but the the problem they have uh, is, with the spiral arms is that, again, because you have material in stars near the center going around the center of the galaxy faster mm-hmm. than stuff that's farther out. So what so what's happens is it's it's like, Let's say you had, you know, you had these objects that are lined up in a line. Well, as time goes by, that line gets distorted. Okay, and so you the, you have spiral structure that actually it gets wound up tighter and tighter and tighter, and eventually you're not going to be able to see the spiral structure at all. And so this kind of winding should be noticeable after maybe a a few rotations. You know, each rotation might be maybe a hundred million years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after many billions of years, uh, and many of these spiral galaxies are supposed to be more than 10 billion years old, you just shouldn't see it anymore. It should be a blob. It should be a, it should basically a featureless disk, yeah. okay? Yeah. So unless they can come up with a plausible mechanism to maintain that spiral structure for billions of years, it's a problem for them. Okay, yeah. okay. So that spiral galaxies, let's talk a little bit next about another um, phenomenon that we see in deep space that... Um, evolutionists often cite, but really confirms the creationist mm-hmm. model, hot blue stars. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, hot blue stars, even according to conventional scientists, have a limited lifespan. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yes, they would argue that the very hottest blue stars can only survive for a few million years, and then they explode. Uh, and so um, 
So really, so the, our question is, if we live in a universe that is almost 14 billion years old, they would say 13.8 billion okay. years old, should we see any blue stars? Uh, and this all, it hinges on a couple of things. First of all, can new stars form today? Now, here at ICR, our, our position has long been that no new stars are forming today. But to be fair, there are some creation astronomers who disagree with that. Mm-hmm. For instance, Danny Faulkner, uh, he has changed his position. He now thinks it might theoretically be possible for stars to form naturally. Um, but here's the problem they've got, okay? They, they being the creationists that believe that stars form? Yeah, okay. yeah he's, he thinks it might be possible. Okay, so so that would that now that calls it may it raises an issue. Is this still a valid argument? Now, the problem for the evolutionists though is they ultimately do not have a good explanation for stars in general. Mm-hmm. Their problem is they have a very they can't explain the first generation of stars because all their theories of star formation, whether they involve exploding supernova or thing, things like that. If you read between the lines, they all assume that stars already exist. Mm-hmm. So they have a chicken and egg problem they mm-hmm. can't solve. Now, some of them say, oh, well, dark matter can solve that. And they use dark matter to try to explain the, the first generation of stars. Well, the problem with that is we don't know, A, if dark matter even exists. Some of us are very skeptical that dark matter exists in the quantities that evolutionists claim it does. Mm-hmm. And then... Even if it is, even if it does, we don't know what it is, right? So it's kind of hard to say. You know, it might as well be pixie dust, right? You, I mean, you can make make it be anything you want if you don't know what it is. But actually, I think there are some blue stars that, even if blue stars in general are not necessarily still a valid argument, there are some blue stars that I think are. And I wrote about this in a recent news article called "Stars Defy Big Bang." It wasn't a very descriptive title. We could have done a little better on the title there. Uh, but there <laughs> it's are the point there, of cross. Yeah, it, but it was it was not very specific. Okay, but there are there are hot blue stars that orbit very closely to the giant supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Okay. It's called Sagittarius A star. It's a supermassive black hole, and you have these. Blue, these blue stars, they're like orbiting very tightly around that. Now, here's why it's a problem for evolutionists. Um, they have a hard time explaining how a star could form naturally that close to a black hole. So let, let's just assume for the sake of argument that you can get stars to form naturally. If, you've, if you're given the first generation of stars, right. okay? The problem is that they have the, the gravitational forces near the black hole are so great that it makes it hard to explain a star being formed naturally there. Because would, if I understand it correctly, with the matter forming the star, would I, it get continually I, I sucked think, in? I think it would or? probably just get ripped apart. Okay, okay? Mm-hmm. I haven't looked into detail on that, but I think that's what they're getting okay. at. It's just the gravitational forces are so extreme, you can't really plausibly right. have a star forming that close. So they say, okay, well, maybe the star formed farther out and then migrated inward. The problem with that, though, is based on their models, it looks like it ought to take longer than the star's lifetime to migrate inward. So basically, you have some of these hot blue stars that are orbiting this supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy that look like they shouldn't exist. Hmm. And one of them in particular, they've described it as a paradox of youth. It looks like it just shouldn't be there. So I think those blue stars in particular are still very much valid arguments for recent creation. Uh, because they look like they have to be relatively young, and they don't have a good explanation for their origin. 
And what's even more cool about this is that most astronomers think that all the large galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centers. How much you want to bet that even though we may not be able to see them, those other supermassive black holes in other galaxies probably have blue stars in tight orbits around mm, them. So it's not just an isolated incident. It, probably, well, it could happen it, all over. Based on observation, all we can say for sure is that it's true for our galaxy. Right. But pretty much everybody agrees that the other big galaxies also have supermassive black holes. And it's not. And given that there's billions and billions of them, it's not too hard to imagine that there might be these other blue stars in these tight orbits. And if so, that's another problem for them. Wow. Okay. So some creations, to be fair, think that it might theoretically be possible for new stars to form. And and we you know, and candidly, that's something, you know, ICR, our position has long been known. That's not, that's not the case. But to be fair, there are some creation astronomers who, who disagree with that. So, uh, but even if that's true, they can't explain the, the first generation of stars. And mm -hmm. there are other blue stars out there that I think are still very much those particular blue stars are still very much a problem for them. Interesting. So what do you think is the strongest argument from an evolutionary perspective that blue stars are still forming and does it work? Okay, great question. Well, the, the, okay, mainly it's circumstantial. Even evolutionists will admit nobody's ever seen a new star form, but they think they've got circumstantial evidence. Okay. You've got these uh, gas clouds where they, they think there are stars there that, are blue, and by they're assuming they must have formed recently. So in their minds, they've got a strong circumstantial case that star formation can form. But but I think they, they would admit that there are big gaps in their understanding. They don't have a theoretical model that can start from scratch, get blue stars to form, and go all the way through. Mm -hmm. now, mo now, most creationists, and I think uh, we would all, I think most of us would agree, stellar evolution can probably happen. You can have stars changing from one kind to another, uh, and the, especially if you think God used some kind of time dilation. If, you've, if you're given millions or billions of years in deep space, you might very well have stars changing from one kind to another, and I don't have a problem with that. I don't think most creationists would. What gives us a little more heartburn, though, okay, is what it, can, you, can you actually have stars forming naturally, and I would rather that not be the case but maybe it is okay well, even if it is it does not disprove what scripture says well and, yeah. and that's a point danny faulkner makes scripture doesn't necessarily say that no new stars are forming okay right. but the, the there's another factor though that complicates this okay what we're assuming how we interpret what we're seeing depends on how long we think it took that light to get here hmm. and that really complicates things mm -hmm. and i'll give you an example uh, Russ Humphreys recently has come up with a new model to explain distant starlight um, where God used a, a much greater speed of light in deep space during days four through six of creation week to get the light here. Now, in Russ's model, anything that's more than 6,000 light years away, we would still be seeing light that was emitted on day four. Now, why is that interesting? Okay, so let's say we're looking out here and you've got what you think is circumstantial evidence for star formation. Well, God was making stars on day four. Now, I personally would have preferred that he did not use a natural process so that so the evolutionists can't use that as an excuse. But if you're seeing light that was emitted on day four, 
that's consistent with scripture. And, and, and you might not, what you might be seeing might not even be star formation at a later time. It might have been on day four. So because we have to make assumptions oh about, about how long the light got here, <laughs> yeah. that complicates everything, okay? So I'm not necessarily prepared to concede that the evidence demands that star formation can happen today, and I think there's theoretical problems with it. But to be fair, and to our listeners, there are creation astronomers who disagree. They think that maybe we're a little too dogmatic on that mm-hmm. point. But even so, A, again, they can't explain the first generation of stars B, uh, there's theoretical problems with it. And C, there are some of these blue stars that I think, regardless of what you believe about whether star formation can happen naturally or not, are still very much strong arguments for a relatively young creation. Okay, no, that's super helpful. Thank you for going through all of yeah, that. And I'm just, gl- and yeah, and I'm glad. We, you know, we try really hard to stay up to date. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because there aren't that many of us. But we want to continually evaluate our arguments. And if we Mm -hmm. see something that's not right, we want to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that we're having these discussions. I'm glad that um, uh, we can talk about new developments. And not be scared of the new developments. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. The scripture is going to continue to be confirmed. Yes. Okay. We have talked about a lot of deep science and... I don't know about our listeners, but I am not a physicist, okay. even though <laughs> yeah. you are. Sure. But we're going to take a little bit of a step back. Okay. Okay. So we're going to take a deep breath um, from the deep science that we've been talking about. And just for a minute, we're going to have our cue random science question okay. of the day. Okay. So today's question is a little bit of background. So we live on this planet. And a lot of us have seen that graphic where it kind of shows us on Earth and it zooms out and out and out and out and out. And you just see just the massiveness of this universe compared to this tiny little planet that we live on. And we're tiny compared to the planet even. Right, yes. Why do you think that all of the rest of the universe exists if the point of creation is what happens on this planet? Right. Well, that's something the evolutionists use as an argument against Christianity. They say, you know, in fact, you got that line from the movie uh, Cosmos where, uh, was it Cosmos? Yeah, I believe that's right. Where the Jodie Foster character says, you know, it's an, if, it's, if there's no life out there, it's an awfully big waste of space. But there's a, a better, I think, answer for Christians. And first of all, God shows us his glory by making the universe so big. We get just a feel for how powerful and how big and strong he is. Oh, it's mind-blowing. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And I think, and I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but Dr. Henry Morris, who founded ICR, believed this, and I believe it too. I think that when the Lord Jesus comes back and we get our new glorified bodies, we're going to need a big playground to play on. (laughs) And I think he's going to let us just explore the entire universe and see those wonders that he made up close. And um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. Because if God is glorified, if we see these celestial wonders from a distance through a glass darkly, if you will, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, how much more is he going to be glorified if we get to see them up close? Mm. And I don't see, I don't have any good theological objection to that. I mean, you know, the Bible says God has already given us his son how much more will he give us all things? So I, I think it's entirely plausible uh, and reasonable to think that when he comes back, he's going to let us explore the rest of the universe. That is it, something to look forward to. It is. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think we're going to need spaceship suits or spaceships either. I think he's, we're going to just be able to go anywhere we want, like the angels. And uh, you know what's sad about this? And I've said this before in one of our other podcasts. It's really sad uh, that evolutionists will not come to the Lord Jesus because— 
To be able to explore deep space without the need for spacesuits or spaceships would be an astronomer or astronaut's dream come mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And there is only one person who's got the power to make that dream come true, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And they just will not come to him. Yeah. And it's really kind of sad if you think about it. Well, because that's why the universe exists. It yes. doesn't just exist so God can say, okay, I made all this stuff. Right. It exists so that we can turn to him, turn to Jesus right. Christ as the creator, yes. and give him glory that he yes. deserves. And yeah. I, and I, yeah. And so I, it's kind of sad. But, you know, for Christians, I mean, we've got a lot to look forward to. Mm-hmm. The yes, best really is yet to come. Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, you're making me happy. Oh, good, good. Great. <laughs> okay, okay, so to dive back into the topic at hand, sure. we're going to talk about another deep space phenomenon, globular sure. clusters. Right. So it's kind of a funny name, glob, globular clusters. What are they? Okay. Globular kind of means spherical. So you're looking at these very spherically, uh, very spherical-like uh, clusters of stars that are pretty close together. They're very beautiful. Uh, you know, if you look at pictures of them, they're, they're, they're very, the stars are very closely packed toward the center, and they get a little more diffuse as you go out. But they're beautiful. They look like celestial snow globes, mm-hmm. really. Now, there are a couple of lines of evidence that these things are a lot younger than what evolutionists claim. They claim that globular clusters are some of the oldest objects in the universe. Why do they claim that? Oh, good question. I'm not sure if I know exactly why they say that, but that's part of their theory. They would say um, uh, most of them are, um, oh, at least 11 billion years old, I think they would say. And some of them would say they're even older than that. Uh, now, the reason that's interesting, okay, is because there it, it takes a little while to set this up, but but based on their beliefs, okay, they, they think that you had these hot blue stars in the globular clusters that because they run through their nuclear fuel very quickly, mm-hmm. they're going to explode very early on in the history of the globular cluster. Okay. Okay, so you have these blue stars billions of years ago, they explode, and you have these supernova. You know, when you, when a star explodes, you've got a supernova, and it can give you can get this kick where a neutron star is kicked out. Now, the speeds at which a lot of these neutron stars are thought to get kicked out is around maybe 100 kilometers per second, something like that, a few hundred kilometers per second. The escape speed, though, for the globular clusters might be maybe 30 kilometers per and second. And what's the difference between those two? Okay, well, just the the, the kick speed, that's just how fast it got kicked okay. uh, out from the, the, from the supernova. Uh, but the escape speed is the, what minimum speed do you need to exit the globular okay. cluster? Mm-hmm. Now... If these things really are billions of years old, there should be hardly any of these neutron stars left. Mm. But there are. There's a bunch of them. And they should have all been kicked out by now, right? That's exactly right. Or it, maybe not all of them, but, but there most. should be very few. Yes. Okay. And they've no, this is something they've known about for a long time. It's called the neutron star retention problem. And it looks like there's too many neutron stars in these globular clusters. Mm-hmm. And that could be an argument that these globular clusters are a lot younger. Now, it's not an airtight argument. Uh, the way they get around this, some of them, is they would argue that there are glob- there are neutron stars out there that have much slower speeds that we just don't see. And uh, you can make that argument because uh, the slower speeds would be harder to observe, and usually we get upper limits on the speed. So you can maybe make that argument, but it, it's it's kind of ad hoc. It's like we, we need this to explain Mm. Why we don't see these these uh, why we see so many neutron stars right. in there? Now, 
that might work. But another explanation is, well, maybe they're just not that old. Right. <laughs> but there's another argument that I like even better regarding globular clusters that I think is an even stronger argument. And this involves what you call central rotation in these globular clusters. Now, the globular clusters, most of them are spinning. Okay. They're rotating around this common axis. Kind of like galaxies. Yes, yes. But the the problem for them, remember I said earlier that the stars in the center are relatively close together. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you look at mm-hmm. them and they're just, I mean, it looks like this mass of light. The thing is, if these stars are close to one another and they're rotating around this common axis, over millions and billions of years, they're going to nudge each other gravitationally. Okay, their their orbits are going to be perturbed a little bit, mm-hmm. and so what happens is eventually, if you if given enough time, that central rotation gets totally erased. Their orbits become completely randomized, and there should not be any central rotation in the center of the globe. So kind of playing p- playing bumper cars a little kind bit. Of, kind yes. of yes, it's okay. not not that they're necessarily actually colliding, but they're nudging each other gravitational. Mm-hmm. They're nudging each okay. other. And they estimate that it should take at most maybe a hundred million. They they have they may have this thing called the relaxation time, which is a measure of the time scale for this to happen. And really, after you know maybe a few hundred million years, maybe a billion years, you shouldn't see that rotational signature. Well, guess what? There's a bunch of these spiral, uh, these globular clusters where we do see that rotational signature, and they've said. We don't, this is amazing. This is astonishing because both the computer simulations and our calculations show that this rotational sh- signature should be gone. Hmm. And it's not. Now, and so that to me looks like a, and that's a fairly new argument. Okay. This is, was only pointed out back in 2014, I okay, think. Okay. Wow. So this is fairly new. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, at least right now, this is another argument that these globular clusters are a lot younger than what they're saying. Now, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe in the future, maybe their models will be more sophisticated. Maybe they can take that into account. But right now, at least, uh, this is an anomaly for them that is hard to explain. Now, again, I want to make this clear. Remember, we're it's, we're not trying to show that these globular clusters are less than 6,000 years old. Well, I believe they are. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's right. measured by clocks right. on Earth. But if you had clocks out in deep space, they might be millions of years old. They might even be a few billion years old. But they're nowhere near the ages that the evolutionists are claiming. Mm-hmm. They're too young to comfortably fit the Big Bang theory. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm saying based, you know, based if you look if you're using clocks here on Earth, which is I think what the Bible does when it talks about the days of creation, it's clearly measuring time on Earth because it talks about the evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second right. day. Everything is 6,000 years old, mm-hmm. okay? It's measured from our frame of reference. We're, we're firmly saying that everything is 6,000 years old. But, you know, if you're looking at relativistic effects, may, you might have had millions of years. But even so, it still looks way younger than it ought to be if the Big Bang story is correct. Right. So it's still an argument for relative youth. Okay, okay. Yeah. When it comes to deep space um, items or phenomenons that confirm creation. We've talked about several different things that really go towards that direction. Are there any arguments that are frequently used or sometimes used by creationists from deep space phenomenons that really get on your nerves that you don't think should be used as arguments? Well, I, so far, I think I've mentioned the only ones that come to my mind. Okay. I, I do. Danny Faulkner is saying that that maybe you can have stars form naturally. So that might, uh, we may need to loosen up on that argument a little bit. 
There's also this is related to that. There there are things called blue stragglers in globular clusters that are are another particular young universe argument. And Danny Faulkner has pointed out that one way the evolutionists explain this is they think that it may be possible for stars to merge with one another and rejuvenate, where you actually get you have these old these big stars that aren't blue, but they become they become blue stars. Now that might actually work, okay? And you could also have material that gets siphoned off by a companion star to another one and it gets rejuvenated so so to speak and becomes a blue star. Mm-hmm. There's some observational evidence for that, okay? Now, but the thing is, can they explain all of them? I, you know, even even the Encyclopedia Britannica says that they're not really sure they can completely explain globular uh, I'm sorry, blue stragglers. Mm-hmm. But that's another that sort of falls within this category of blue stars. Uh, I think I've mentioned everything I can think of um, as, as far as uh, now of course there's disagreement among creationists about what the correct explanation for distant starlight is right at ICR I think we pretty much all lean toward time dilation or something like that mm-hmm. um, and other people have different ideas but where I think I'm I'm more comfortable I think with Russ's ideas than I am with some others Russ's ideas being but, well I like his most recent one in particular the idea that the speed of light in deep space was just much greater during mm-hmm. the the part of the creation week I like it because it's easy to understand um, it's not something that's really hard to explain and it 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 also explain it, it an automatic consequence of his model is that Time clocks in deep space would run faster because it's a it's a understood consequence of relativity theory that if you crank up the speed of light, time runs faster. So if you had the speed of light in deep space much faster during part of the creation week, clocks automatically run faster in deep space. And so okay. that ha- and there are some observations like where you have colliding galaxies, things like like that, that seem to suggest or require. Lots amount of time. Well, this automatically takes care of that. Mm. So I, it's too early to be dogmatic, but I like Russ's new idea. Okay. Okay. I think he's got a YouTube video on it, and as well as a technical paper that's been published. Although it's not yet open access, people may have to wait a while to read it if they're not subscribing to the Journal of Creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like his idea. I, you know, I'll, especially his new one. Okay. So I, those are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head that we need to watch out for. I mentioned the spiral galaxy again. I'm, I'm, I think it's probably still a valid argument, but I'm reading a lot of recent papers to try to make sure that it's still valid. Right. I think it probably is though. Yeah. Uh, now there's some other arguments in our solar system that I think. We can we can come back to. I think there's one argument in particular. I think we need we need to clean up. It, it's not I I think an airtight argument, mm-hmm. and I've said so because well, pub- it still confirms scripture. Well, but it, it doesn't. It's not air. It's not airtight. Yeah. It's not airtight. And uh, and I've mentioned that already in an in on, online news article, and we can maybe talk about that in another podcast. But but I, those are the ones that come to my mind. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We have gone over a lot today. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything else you'd like to just mention? Or we've touched on a lot. Yeah. No. I not really. Except uh, the Bible is always right, mm-hmm. and even if you don't understand, we ought to believe it because as our knowledge increases, we're going to see that it was right after all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And we can see that over and over and over yes. again, even as new information comes to light. Yes. Oh, by the way, I do have something to say. Okay. I do have something, but this is totally unrelated to what we're talking oh, about. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I'm curious. I, uh, 
I am super excited about my current research project. I mean, I am more excited about it than anything I've worked on at ICR so far. And that is saying something. If yes. you know Dr. Hebert, you know yes. he's very enthusiastic yes. about what uh, he works so, on. And I don't, I don't want to spill the beans right okay. now. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping to present these results at the International Conference on Creationism this summer. Okay. We'll see how it's received, but I am really pumped about it. Okay. And I think, uh, Lord willing, if it holds up, I think our our readers and our listeners are going to be very pumped about it too. That is exciting. You've yes. definitely gotten our interest okay, up. We'll keep yes. an eye out for that. And yes. well, that's super encouraging to hear and um, just to see specific evidences of that. So thank you again for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me again. And to our viewers, be sure to like and subscribe. Um, you can access the creation podcast anywhere you usually access your podcast. Um, you definitely want to subscribe so that you're first to know about new ICR content. And for now, I'm Lauren. And we'll see you next time on the Creation Podcast.